If you're joining us, you're joining us in the middle of a series or toward the end of a series on spiritual warfare. We take a look at the armor of God out of Ephesians chapter 6. In our text today, we'll read from Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through the first half of verse 17. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it with us there to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have it, you can follow along on the screen behind me as we read these verses together this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. This is God's word. About 10 years ago now, uh, my sister-in-law's brother, so my brother's wife's brother, if you're following along, okay, uh, my sister-in-law's brother was heading home from college, and he and his friend took an exit off of the interstate in order to make a pit stop at a gas station, and whenever they pulled out into the cross street, someone was coming around the corner, did not see them coming off of the interstate, and T-boned them from the passenger side door. He happened to be seated in the passenger's seat. He was rushed to the hospital and they were able to stabilize him, but he suffered what would be known in the medical field as a traumatic brain injury, a TBI. And in those first several months, it was very touch and go whether or not he was actually going to survive, whether or not he was actually going to live. But as the swelling began to recede, his body began to respond to some degree. They were able to take him off of a respirator. But even today, 10 years later, he still cannot perform many of the functions that he could previously. He is still bound to a wheelchair. He still cannot feed himself. Basically, all he's able to do on his own is breathe. Right? He can't feed himself. He can't talk. He just moans and grunts in expressions that are irrecognizable. Uh, and his family has continued to care for him over the course of that time. Right? The Lord has wired us in such a way that our brains really control much of what our bodies do. Right? And whenever there is a compromised brain, then the rest of our body at times is compromised as well. Okay? And I want you to know that the same that is true in our physical bodies is also true in our souls. You see, whenever your brain is compromised, your body's going to be compromised. And whenever your mind is compromised, church, your soul will be as well. And that's why Paul goes on to talk to us about the helmet of salvation. In other words, God's given you some headgear. He's given you something to protect your head. He's given something for you to protect your mind with. Because your mind essentially uh, will control the way that the rest of your life functions, the way that your soul responds. See, your thought life dictates how you process the realities that are happening to you. It dictates how you process the realities that are happening around you. This is why the same thing, right? You with me? The same thing can happen to two different people and they can have two totally different responses to it because they're processing it with a thought life 
okay, that may have been compromised. Two people can receive the same criticism regarding how they've executed on their job, and one can learn from it and grow. The other can be crushed from it, right, and, and essentially resign. Two people can experience the same loss of someone they loved. They can experience the same physical therapy following a devastating accident or injury. They can encounter the same hardship or heartache and respond very differently because of the way that their mind is processing the realities of their life. And this is why God's given us a helmet to protect our minds against the attacks of the enemy. Because if the enemy can compromise your mind, church, he can compromise your soul. He can compromise the rest of your life. And so we come to this in verse 17, the first part of verse 17, what Paul calls the helmet of salvation. Now we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. And so what I want to do is just dive right in this morning and want us to see what it is that God's provided to us to protect our heads and what we ought to do with it, okay? So here's first, first point as we move forward this morning. If we're going to protect our heads and wear this helmet of salvation, we've got to protect our head with hope. With hope. See, Paul calls our headgear the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. And like the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation comes straight out of Isaiah 59, 17, where we see this divine warrior who God sends to judge and to redeem his people, where he puts on the breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation on his head. In fact, throughout the book of Isaiah, there's always a connection between God's righteousness and the salvation of God's people. Righteousness and salvation are connected throughout Isaiah. For instance, in Isaiah 51, God says, My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and my, for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wood. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. In other words, in Isaiah 51, God says, because of my righteousness, Israel's deliverance is guaranteed. It is certain and secured. So why don't you think about this for a minute. In the real hardships of daily life in Babylonian exile, that's where they were. In the real hardships of life, separated from the land that they loved, having lost many of the people that they loved, they would have had to have wondered, has the Lord abandoned us? Has he left us to decay? Has he left us on our own? Because of our sin, but God in the midst of that and Isaiah comes to encourage his people with this confident hope that his promises would not fail. And although people would come and go, empires would rise and fall, even he says the heavens and earth, he says will wear out one day like some old clothes, right? And they'll be burned up like, and they'll disappear like smoke rising from a fire. All that's coming. People will come and go, empires rise and fall, right? Even, even, uh, even the heavens and the earth are going to vanish. However, because the Lord is righteous, he always does what is right and just. And he is bound to keep his promises, including the salvation of his people. And listen, this certainty, 
And the promises of God is the foundation for his people's hope in the midst of their mess of life. Okay? Of their trials, of their afflictions, and of their hardships. This is why Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, describes the helmet in this way. He says, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. Now listen, church, I've discovered that you can live without a lot of things in this life, but you cannot live without hope. You cannot live without hope. See, when people lack hope that things will ever change, they lose all incentive to work hard. When people lack hope that things will ever improve, they want to burn everyone and everything to the ground with them. When people lack hope that things will ever get better than they are today, you know what they do? They take their own lives and we say what? They lost all hope. You can live without a lot of things, but you cannot live without hope. And hope is the helmet that we're given by God to protect our heads with. Because without hope, listen, you will lose your mind. <laughs> you will lose your mind. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, be sober-minded. Right? That word means think clearly about your present circumstances and situation. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In this verse, being sober-minded, in other words, being in your right mind, not having lost your mind, okay, is connected to spiritual warfare because someone who's sober-minded is constantly watching for the prowling of this roaring lion who's seeking to devour us who's seeking to crush us within the jaws of pain and suffering and affliction and hardship. And without hope, you will lose your mind. You will not be sober-minded, okay? You'll be like the, <laughs> you'll be like the, the, the late teen or early 20-something who's out in the, the sticks and says, hold my beer and watch this, right? You'll, do so, you'll go do crazy stuff, right? You'll lose your mind. So listen, Protect your head with hope. But what is hope? Listen, in our day and time, we use that word hope in a very flimsy way, okay? Like a couple of weeks ago when the NFL season kicked off, some of you are like, I hope the Cowboys have a good season. But listen, you have no reasonable expectation to believe that based upon their track record. <laughs> Over the course, I just like to get little jabs in there, you know what I'm saying? No reasonable expectation. Like we use that word hope to describe the things that we're wishing for. See if I can break it down for you like this. Listen, many years ago, I know you kids don't, don't recognize the fact that there was a day before Amazon. There was a day before Walmart.com, before Target.com. There was a day, okay, I can remember as a child growing up in South Louisiana, as Christmas approached every year, that we would receive in the mail this big anchor. It was like an anchor for a boat. It was from Sears and Roebuck, and it was called the Wish Book. And it had everything you can imagine. It had bedding, and it had sheets, it had curtains, it had houseware, it had kitchen utensils, it had toys, it had uh, uh, like, like tools, all kinds of stuff in this thing. And my brother and I, we would open straight to the t toy section, and we would dog ear, and we would highlight, and we'd underline, we'd tear stuff out, and we would make our wish list, and we would submit that wish list to our very benevolent and kind parents. 
believing that they were going to, out of the generosity and goodness of their heart, were going to give us some of the things that we were wishing for. But we had no reasonable expectation they were going to give us everything that was on that list. Right? We were wishing for those things. And yet when my wife and I became pregnant with our first child and we began to go to doctor's appointments... And they began to take sonograms and we began to hear the heartbeat. We began to see that baby moving in the womb. And we began to slowly begin to prepare for, right, putting together the nursery and buying, you know, getting stuff at showers and bedding and painting the wall, all those things. You know what we were doing? We weren't wishing for something. We were waiting for something. And when the Bible uses the word hope, it is not talking about us wishing for something to happen, but waiting for something to happen. Because hope in the Bible is expectant and active waiting. That's what hope is. For instance, in Isaiah 51, we read, The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Hoping is waiting. In addition, this gets really clear in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, where Paul says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, to hope is to wait, and to wait is to hope. That's what hope is, expectant and active waiting. There's a certainty about what we are waiting for and anticipating, and that leads us to certain actions in our lives. But what is it as Christians we are waiting for? What are we expecting? We're laying some groundwork. This is going to get real practical here in a moment, all right? We're laying some groundwork. What is it that we're waiting for? Listen, church, we are waiting as Christians for the certain expectation of our full salvation. That's what we're waiting for. The certain expectation of our full salvation, right? In verse 17, again, Paul describes it as the helmet of salvation or the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet is the hope, but the hope of what? Listen, it is not the hope of a new car and a bigger house. I know there's some preachers who would try to sell you that these days, all right? It is not the hope for health and wealth, the hope of an easy life with a comfortable retirement, It's not the hope of fame and fortune, not the hope of designer shoes and bags. Listen, it's not the hope of a big bass or a big buck hanging on the wall. Okay? That is not the hope. It's the hope of our full salvation. See, throughout the New Testament, we read about there being three aspects to our salvation. First of all, our justification. In our justification, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Justification means that God has declared us to be righteous in his sight, not because of what we have done, but because of our faith in what Christ has done. That he has done work on our behalf and bearing our sin at the cross, living the life that we could not live, dying the death that we should have died. God raised him from the grave and he declares us righteous when we place our faith in him. He justifies us and saves us or frees us from the penalty of sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 5 verses 6 through 11 where he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved 
by him from the wrath of God. In other words, the wrath of God was to be poured out at the end of time on all who rebel against God, on all of his enemies who would stand opposed to him, that God, through Jesus, by faith, by grace, through faith, and in Christ, if you trust in him, that he turns aside his wrath as it's laid on Jesus. He absorbed it so God could declare us to be righteous. That's justification. We're saved from the penalty of sin. But sanctification means that we're saved from the power of sin. The power of sin. It means that we who are declared righteous in our position before God, listen, we slowly become righteous in our practice, in the way that we live. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, Paul says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. In other words, you've been set free from sin's mastery over you. You've been set free from sin's dominion over you. It no longer rules you. It no longer has power or authority over you. You can now say no to sin and yes to God. And when you do, there's a fruit that's born in your life that's called sanctification as you're formed more into the image of Jesus day after day after day because you're set free from sin's power. But then finally... Finally, whenever God brings all of human history to a close, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. The Bible calls this glorification. Glorification means that there will be a time when all those who trust in and treasure Jesus above all things will be fully and finally free from even the presence of sin. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul speaks of it this way. He says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He speaks of our glorification being free from sin's presence with such certainty that he talks about it in the past tense. So you're going to get that on the way home, okay? In the past tense, as if it's already happened and it's so secure. That one day, even from the presence of sin, we'll be set free. And that's what we're waiting for, church. The fullness of our salvation. That's our hope. That's our hope. And so, if that's the helmet that God has given us, the certain expectation of our full salvation, what does it do for us? What does it do? I'm going to give you three things that it does, and I'm going to tell you how to put it on, and then we're going to be done. All right? Number one, the first thing that it does for us is that it enables us to fight sin with hope. To fight sin with hope. Listen, a preacher by the name of Thomas Watson said many years ago that sanctification, says the process of, the process of change essentially is heaven begun in the soul. In other words, what we will be fully one day, beginning in part and process today. He goes on to say, sanctification and glory differ only in degree. Sanctification is glory in the seed, and glory is sanctification in the flower. So one day, this seed that's germinating, in our, that's the word I was looking for, germinating in our lives, is ultimately going to bloom in beauty forever. Forever. See, when that flower blooms in all of its beauty, our fight with sin will be no more. There'll be no more lust. 
that we will wrestle with. There'll be no more flesh or greed or covetousness, no more gossip or slander, no more pride, no more injustice, no more hatred or persecution, no more prejudice or partiality, no more genocide, no more bitterness, no more unforgiveness in our hearts. Our wrestling and fighting with sin one day when that flower blooms in all of its beauty for all of eternity, that wrestling with sin will be no more. And listen, I want you to know that hope of that day is the water of heaven channeled to our souls to irrigate that seed today. Let me see if I can break it down for you like this. Listen, one of the reasons some of us may still be wrestling with such degrees of sin in our lives. And let me, let me just be clear. We're never going to reach a day and time in this age where we'll reach sinless perfection. Do you not believe that at all? The Bible doesn't teach that. But there are some strongholds that sin has in your life that you just cannot seem to break. And I wonder for some of us if the reason that we cannot break those things is not because we haven't been faithful enough to look back at history and see what Christ has done, but we have not thought about looking forward to the future and seeing what Christ will do and going to war against sin in the present with our hope of what will be one day. Let me see if I can show it to you like this. Listen, we... If you wrestle with pride and self-exaltation, I don't know anybody who does that, right? Especially me. But if you wrestle with pride, listen, you fight pride by not only looking back at the humility of Jesus in his incarnation in his first advent when he came, right? And he considered not equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the very nature of a servant, right? clothed in human flesh, served us all the way to the cross, laid down his life. Yes, you look back at history and you see Jesus' humility in his first advent, but you must also, if you wrestle with pride and kind of thinking a little more of yourself than you should, you got to look forward at the future, at your hope, and see that one day, listen, the glory of the Lord's going to cover the earth as the waters the sea. In other words, God's glory is going to be so big that it's going to envelop all of us and we will realize one day just how small we are and compared to God. So you look back at his humility and you look forward at his glory when he comes and you go to war against pride in the present. Or if you're struggling with lust, If you're struggling with lust or immorality, you look back at the bloody body of Jesus on the cross, but you also look forward to the returning king who's on a white horse with armies that are clothed in white robes representing the purity of God himself. Right? You look forward to that day whenever you don't only look back and see the price that Jesus paid for my thought life, but you look forward to see that one day you're going to be pure forever. And while today you may wrestle and struggle and, and, and experience a weariness of trying to take every cap thought captive in obedience to Christ. Anybody with me this morning? Every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Sometimes there's a weariness that comes to that. But you also look forward and saying one day every thought will be captivated by him. Every thought will be captivated by him. If you struggle with prejudice or partiality, you look backwards and you see the way that Jesus engaged people of all classes, all races, all walks of life. But you also look forward And you see that there's a day that's coming where there'll be people from every nation, every tribe and tongue that will be gathered around the throne and crying out to the lamb who was slain, worthy is the lamb. 
You fight greed and covetousness by looking back upon all that God has given in Jesus Christ at the cross and look forward to all he will give us upon the reception of what Peter calls uh, the inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. Romans 8 tells us that as a fellow heir of Jesus, there's an inheritance that's waiting for us. Listen, and it's better than 40 acres. And a 401k. It's better. And so how do you free the grip of greed and covetousness all your life? You look back at all that he's given and you look forward to all that you're going to receive in your inheritance. Fight sin with hope, church. Not just history, but hope. What else does hope do for us? Listen, not only do we fight sin with hope, but we fuel service with hope. We fuel service with hope. See, one of the schemes of the devil in our day, listen, is a brand of complacent, consumeristic Christianity. I call it North Texas Christianity because it is not New Testament Christianity. Right? You see what I did there? N-T-C. It's one of those things they teach you in seminary. You know what I'm saying? But North Texas Christianity tends to be very complacent, very consumeristic. What's in this for me? Right? What, what can I, how can I benefit? Not where can I roll my sleeves up and get involved and make a difference in the life of a church or a life of a community? Because, listen, biblical hope does not say, I wish things would get better. But biblical hope is waiting for the day in which they will get better and then rolls up their sleeves today and then works to see things more reflect today what they will look like in that day. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come in the Sermon on the Mount, your will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. In other words, that our kingdoms and our cultures and our churches and our lives here in this present reality would look like and reflect more of heaven's values and vision and the way that God has designed men and women to be in this world. Right? That's what hope does. See, what we believe about the end of human history will give significance and shape to our lives today. Listen, one, one 17th century Anglican theologian by the name of Richard Sibb said it this way, the life of a Christian is wondrously ruled in this world by the consideration and meditation of the life of another world. Leslie Newbegin, a, a more modern missiologist, said, meaningful action in history is possible only when there is some vision of a future goal. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you like this. Listen, if you are a Christian this morning, someone who's repented of sin, they've trusted in Christ, they're walking in obedience to Him, trying to seek to put sin to death, right? Listen, your life, my life, are to be previews or trailers of the age that is to come. Now listen, I know many of us haven't been in the movies this summer, okay? <laughs> right? There haven't been a whole lot of movies released in the theaters this summer. But listen, if you remember back in the day, like nine months ago, okay, before the pandemic, when you went to a movie theater, before the full feature presentation came on, you got to sit through like 17 trailers, right? It seems like the, more move, the older I get, the more previews there are, but I just want to see the movie, right? I don't need to see 17 trailers, before the movie. But there's like all these trailers of full feature presentations that are in production. They're going to be released at some point in the future. 
right? They're giving you a foretaste of what that will be like whenever you go to the theater in nine months or 12 months and you see that movie that's in post-production today when you see the theaters tomorrow. And listen, if you're a Christian, the, the life of a local body, a local church, in your individual life, my life, ought to be a trailer of what the life that is to come in this life, right? We ought to be previews of heaven, as we pray and as we work to see God's kingdom on earth, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, on August 28, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and he delivered what was perhaps the centerpiece address of the civil rights movement. And toward the end of that speech, which many of us are familiar with, these are the words that he says. And even so, though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the, character, by, the, by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope, and this is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we'll be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, pray together, struggle together, go to jail together, stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. See, Dr. King's speech is saturated with Old Testament language and it's dripping with hope. He knew that what he was waiting for would come one day, with or without him. But he was not wishing for it, he was waiting for it. And as he waited for it, it led him to do something about it. He waited. His waiting fueled his service, his speeches, the marches, the beatings that he endured, the nonviolent resistance that he advocated for. He said, I know this day is coming in which every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around the throne and give praise and glory and honor to the Lamb who was slain. So in this day, I'm going to work to see that become a reality. The will of God on earth as it is in heaven. See, our hope fuels our service. As trailers of the age to come, we ought to work as casas, child-appointed special advocates in the legal system. We ought to adopt children, sponsor children, to release them from poverty, tutor disadvantaged kids. 
As trailers of the age to come, Christians counsel, come together to counsel struggling families, work to make communities safe places to live. They become big brothers or big sisters. As Christians, our professional lives, our academic lives, our personal friendships, our marriages and dating relationships, our financial decisions should all be trailers of the age to come. And this is not some social gospel saying that if you will just do these things, you'll be partnering with God to make the world a better place. No, God is coming in Christ to renew and restore everything, and I want to be in on that today. Hope fuels our service. But third, not only do we fight sin with hope and fuel service with hope, we find healing in our hope. See, so many of us know what it is to hurt. We know what it is to see a child go off the rails in our families. We know what it is like to lose someone we loved far too soon. We know what it's like to be betrayed by those closest to us. We know the heartache and horror of disease and death. We know what it is to hurt. But listen, I want you to know that the only healing for your hurt in this world is hope for a world that is to come. That's why in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle John describes this vision, and he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more. There's a day that's coming in which whatever hurt or heartaches or horrors you've experienced in this life, they'll be wiped away. The pain will be no more. The tears will be known. And listen, it's not just going to be because your loved ones are there. It's going to be because the great lover of your soul is there. And he will wipe away those tears. It's not going to be your grandpa wiping away your tears. His tears have been wiped away by someone as well. You find healing in your hope. See, no matter the hopelessness you feel now because of the circumstances that you have in this life, You can know that it won't always be this way because Jesus is returning to rule and to reign. That one day all the sad things will come untrue. And one day all the brokenness will be turned to beauty in your life. He'll trade you beauty for the ashes. One day all the heartaches will be healed. The disappointments will be done away with. The wounds will be closed over. The scabs, listen, will no longer be able to be picked They'll no longer be able to ooze, but they'll be reminders of, no longer be reminders of grief, but evidences of God's grace in your life. That's what's coming. See, all of our happily ever afters will one day be a reality. In this life, right, there's a lot of sad endings, aren't there? Right? A lot of those movies, right, that just end with like, and they all died. Right? And you walk, you walk out of the movie theater like, What? That's this life. But I want you to know that today that's coming when all your happily ever afters will come true because there is a beauty that is able to tame the beast in each of us. There's a prince whose kiss will wake us up from the curse of death. There's a father whose love for his children will be so deep that one day it turns us from hollow puppets into real little boys and girls. You might be thinking, man, come on. Those are all fairy tales. But listen, you want those to be true, don't you? Do you know why you want those to be true so desperately? It's because you were built for there being a never-ending, happy ending. That's what you were built for. And sin has ravaged that. 
And what I'm trying to do is rip open this reality that you know deep down inside is there. But sometimes you're just afraid to admit that one day all of our happily ever afters will come true. There will be a never-ending happy ending. Andy Minio, a a Christian hip-hop artist, says it this way in his song, Death Has Died. He says, one day my God's going to crack the sky. He's going to bottle up every tear that we've ever cried, bring truth to every lie, justice for every crime. All our shame will be gone and we'll never have to hide. No more broken hearts, no more broken homes, no more locking doors, no more cops patrolling. No abusive words or abusive touches. No more cancerous cells that will take our loved ones. No more hungry kids. No more natural disasters. No child will ever have to ask where his dad is. No funerals where we wear all black and death will be dead. And we'll lock the casket. A day's coming, church. And listen, today, no matter what heartache you've experienced, I want you to know that you can find healing as you look forward to the day in which all your tears will be wiped away. You can find healing through hope. So we fight sin with it. We fuel service with it. And we find healing through it. But how do we get it? Let me close with this. If we're going to have this hope, listen church, you've got to fix your eyes on a person. You've got to fix your eyes on a person. See, this piece of armor, as I said earlier, comes directly from the picture of the divine warrior in Isaiah 59. And early in this series, we saw that the armor that we wear that's given to us was first worn by Jesus, who has gone before us in this fight against Satan, against the evil one, against the enemy. Right? He's ultimately, he, he, he gave his life and was raised from the grave to have victory over all the cosmic authorities and powers and principalities. And yet in his fight against evil and against the enemy, he wore all this armor before us. So you say, where did he wear the helmet of salvation? The author of Hebrews talks about it, I believe, in Hebrews chapter 12, in verses 1 and 2, where he says these words, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was coming out ahead of him, the joy that lay before his eyes, the joy not of what he was facing today, but what he was looking forward to tomorrow. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, if you're going to cultivate this kind of sin-fighting, service-fueling, healing-producing hope in your life, you've got to take your eyes off of your circumstances, off of your sin, off of the sacrifices that you might have to make in order to serve, and fix them on Jesus, seeing that he hoped for you. The joy that was set before him led him to sacrifice. The joy that was set before him led him to serve. The joy that was set before him. So lift your eyes to him. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Lift your eyes to him, church. Psalm 119, 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. He's able to bind up your wounds, make sense of this world, give you the power that you need to fight against sin and temptation and empower you to serve in all kinds of capacities that will bring glory to God as you see his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So flood your mind with the future. Fix your eyes on Jesus.
and cultivate a hope that will protect your head. Because if your mind gets compromised, the rest of your soul isn't far behind. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the day, for the opportunity to be encouraged by your word this morning. I pray that we would leave here, God, not beat up, but God, that we would leave here built up as those who have been reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. And Father, I pray there's anyone in this room this morning or anyone in the sound of my voice on this live stream this morning who does not have this hope, this hope of a glorious future in your presence when your glory covers the earth as the waters the sea, who does not have this hope, who is not waiting on you, but who is merely has a squishy hope of wishing that things would get better in their life. I pray that today that you would meet them by your Holy Spirit and I pray that you would awaken them, that you would give them new life, that you would cause them to be born again as they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those of us who have. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk forward, putting sin to death, laying our lives down for the sake of of this world that you've created, the church that you have set your affection upon in service. And that progressively, day by day, God, that we would have our hurts healed, that our pain and heartache would slowly become wholeness as we fix our eyes on you. May you help us this week to flood our minds with the future. that we would store up in our mind your word as it pertains to what is to come, God, so that we could protect ourselves against the advances of the enemy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.